You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out all trouble and drum and kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum and kick all trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access it by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. Kelly Whitworth, the world's greatest producer, is producing the program and she's put her hand in the barrel and she's pulled out Alison Brononsky. <laughs> Correct me, Alison. Bronowski. Ah, Bronowski. You only got that right two minutes ago and then you forgot in that space of time. No, I didn't forget. You got English is not my first That's language, right. darling. We forgive you then. Just, just remember that, darling. English is not my first language. Now, you've, you just, you just stepped into a spat between me and the producer, Alison, so my apologies there. <laughs> Now, Alison, just for our listeners' sakes, just to orientate them, what year were you born? You don't have to answer it, but you can tell us the uh, the decade, if you wish. <laughs> well, they can all share my uncelebrated birthday. I'm 80, and I was born in 1941. What do you mean, uncelebrated? Well, we weren't able to celebrate, were we? We were going to have a great big party, and we couldn't. Uh, you know, I, I just turned 70, and the same thing happened to me. Indeed. It's a I bit... Just, yeah. we, we went to a wedding, and it was cancelled between when we left home and when we got there. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you living in Victoria or interstate? I, I live in Sydney. In Sydney? Yeah, I used to live in Melbourne. Yeah. lived in Melbourne, worked in Melbourne for three years, had a very good time. I live in Sydney. Oh, my commiserations. <laughs> uh, where were you born? Adelaide. Adelaide. Bit of a wanderer, were you? Pardon me? I said a bit of a wanderer you've been. Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Adelaide, you know. And the rest of the world. And, and the rest of the world. Well, we'll come, we'll come to that. So how long were you in Adelaide for? Until I was 21. Oh, we, we, there's a lot of story there. <laughs> Obviously, you're a war baby. Were, were your parents um, uh, born here in Australia or were they born overseas? No, my, my parents and grandparents on both sides were, were and grand, great-grandparents were all 
born in Australia, German on one side, like many people in South Australia, and um, just sort of English on the other. Um, but they... Uh, uh, Adelaide in the 1950s, let's say, was a pretty quiet place. And around the time when I was getting uh, graduating from university, um, I became aware that there were things going on elsewhere, not only in Australia but in the world, that I didn't know nearly enough about. And I thought the only way I'm going to find out about all this is to go there, get there, and, and, and do so. How was I going to afford that? Because my, my, certainly I didn't have a lot of money, my parents um, So I thought, I need a job that takes me out of Adelaide and preferably takes me to the world. And that was how I joined Foreign Affairs. Ooh, let's, let's go back a few years because it's unusual for a woman in the night, you know, to be going to university during that period. So where did you go to primary school? Well, my parents worked, or my father particularly, because women in those days, uh, my house, women didn't work. Mm. Um, my father worked all his life to put us three children through private schools. So I went to one school for 16 years. And, uh, well, when I no, minus five. I guess I went to one school for 11 years uh, to a school called The Wilderness. My uh -huh. sister both, both went there. It's an extraordinary school run, founded by four Scottish maiden ladies, their mother, who believed in um, advancement of young women and who basically let us do whatever we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds idyllic. You want ladies. that 
there was a better life than doing housework and growing fruit and vegetables and making children's clothes. And I mean, I, I just think now of the, the hard physical work that, that she did uh, all the time, all the time. And to bring us up as ladies, right? Mm. So, so um, my father, on the other hand, used to um, advise us that a woman's place was in the home. So as a, as a young and rebellious teenager, um, I decided that it wasn't for me. And so I managed to get myself a Commonwealth scholarship. I managed to get to university to do pretty well. Ah, and the famous Commonwealth scholarships. The usual. The usual yes, yes. It was the only way. It was the only way for uh, yeah, kids well, from I, families of modest means to get to universities. People forget oh, that. Exactly. And I've never ceased to be grateful to mm. Robert Menzies for founding the Commonwealth scholarships. Yes. I mean, I'm not grateful to him for much else, not <laughs> for the war, for instance. But I very much appreciate that opportunity, which my sister also had, and my brother, who came top in medicine. You know, it was it was the classic, as you say, the classic story. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, I was a Commonwealth Scholarship recipient, so uh, there's no way I could have got to university without that, because uh, I started university before um, the, it became free under the uh, Whitlam government. So, foreign affairs... What do you mean by foreign affairs? <laughs> there, there I was, graduating from Adelaide University with um, an, an arts degree with in English literature and languages, which didn't require me to do anything much except speech. And um, around came to the university a team of people from Canberra um, recruiting and interviewing people who might be interested in joining Australia's fairly young foreign service. Uh And I thought, well, I'll give this a go. And I did. And I (laughs) got in. What what, what, what year was this? 1962. 62. So Menzies was still ruling the roost then. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And, And, of course, because he was ruling the roost and the the nature of the times was such that Jews like my my grandparents uh, uh, endured, they took only one woman into foreign affairs every year, right? Out of about, oh, it might have been 10 or, or 17, 16 or 17 men. Mm-hmm. And there was one woman every year. And why did they do that, you might well ask. They often did ask. They said, it's no point no point in training, you know, they just get married. And the reason there was no, no point was that they had a rule that said that if, you, if a woman got married, she couldn't be a permanent public servant anymore. That's right. And impermanent public servants all over the place, including teachers, yes. to, to, to whom the same rule applied, um, but in foreign affairs, uh, it meant that you, if you got married, you became temporary. And if, as I did, you married one of your colleagues and your colleague wanted to be seized, then if you went too, then you didn't have a job at all. 
Right. <coughs> so that was under Menzies. And now, now, I just I just want to go back a step. Here you are. You got chosen as this single woman around Australia to enter foreign affairs. Was this 62, 63? Yeah, I joined, well, I applied in 62, yes. I joined in 63. Yeah, so how, tell us about your first day. Where Did you go to Canberra or was it was it the department oh, yeah. in Adelaide? You went to Canberra. Oh, tell us the first so day. We we all went to Canberra. Um, we When we went for interviews, we were flown there. Um, and and give great time and and interviewed all over the place and went to the traditional cocktail party to make sure that you could um, behave yourself. All of that. Well, but, I, I assume all that training as a lady came in useful for the cocktail party. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> but when we when we finally did get in and had to go to Canberra as as public servants, no more flying. We went on trains, so we went on a train. Um, three of us from Adelaide went on with our with our bags to um, Melbourne and from there to Canberra and then into a government hostel and that was the beginning of our foreign affairs life and I remember I remember actually the first day we were all supposed to go along to the department in the old admin building. And the car that was supposed to pick us up didn't come. One of our number had already been Department of Defence, and he knew how to um, get a, get hold of a Commonwealth car in Canberra, and he did this. And we all thought, ah, he, this is this is the inside. He's got the This is a test to see what we will do in an emergency. And. And we also, oh, we failed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, call a Commonwealth car if all else fails. <laughs> what, what was the training like? Um, it was rudimentary. Um, they've tried over the years to improve it, and I'm, I don't know how good it is nowadays. At one point, they, they farmed it out to ANU, and that didn't work, they thought. Um because it's a very hands-on sort of training. Uh, first of all, what they're doing is they're recruiting young university graduates who know how to write essays and keep um, lecture notes and things, but have no idea about how to draft a letter for some uh, for their boss to send to someone in another country or uh, a submission to a minister. You know, these things require... <laughs> technique mm. and and so um, they used to look at our early efforts and the ones who did well um, were, were on the way to higher things and the ones who didn't get it were left or had to try harder you know yeah. so uh, we, we, we had a series of, of lectures um, once or twice a week from senior people in the department people of experience. I can remember a former ambassador to China saying, write down John Lai, show me what you've written. And and he picked us all up on the ones who had got I wrong Hmm. with a with two capitals and no hyphen. You know (laughs) things like that. So it was it was as 
I say, sort of down-to-earth stuff. In, in fact, before one of my predecessors, a very distinguished ambassador, on whom I've just written a biographical essay, he said it was dog's body work in the first year. We just shuffled the paper. Oh. Then. And, and indeed, that's what we did. Um, years and years later, somebody else came in as a dog's body when I was a little bit further up the tree, and he was given the job of doing the filing a whole section. Filing was everything that we'd written. Copies had to be kept on files, right, in the registry. Who was this? Kevin Rudd. Well, you trained him well. <laughs> well, I, I may have, but Maria Florence mine didn't. <laughs> well, did he, did he have the same um, personality then, or did that just develop, do you think? Um, he was diligent. Yes. He was, he was smart. Mm. I only knew him for a few months, I guess, mm. and it, I didn't really, I wasn't really around when he started his meteoric rise, but um, he had good credentials for the Chinese, you see, um, which was, he uh, studied at ANU, and he was, he was marked for higher things, clearly. Mm. So how did your progression in the Foreign well, Affairs Department go? <laughs> in the first year, they put me, the, everyone gets put on a desk. So while you're doing these lectures about how to be a diplomat on and off, various, once or twice, you're also working on a desk. And my desk, which is where they always put the one woman in the year, um, was the UN uh, Economic and Social Section. Now, why did they? Because the one woman every year was going to be trained to be sent to the UN, either to Geneva or New York. And the purpose of doing that was to prove to the, um, the world that Australia didn't discriminate against women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, eh? Very interesting that they... Well, well did, yes. did Australia have a reputation of discriminating against women? Well, <laughs> <laughs> how, how could they possibly have got that, I wonder? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway um, somewhat later, um, we, uh, Richard and I decided, one of my colleagues decided that we were going to get married. He went to his boss and, and told him the happy news and he said oh damn <laughs> which, which meant he knew what was going to happen to me so immediately that happened I was moved out of the UN area and put into protocol protocol was where the, the, the chief of protocol liaised with the foreign missions in Canberra and made sure that all their problems were ironed out for them, made sure that the right things were done at the right time, and that, that people... Yeah. Rather than happens now, I must say, that ministers behave themselves when with visiting heads of state, etc. Um, the chief of protocol actually had quite a busy and interesting job, and the man who did that was, was called Macmillan, and he was... 
say. Mm. Um, and he taught me an awful lot. And after I ceased resenting having been taken off the UN work and found myself doing the protocol stuff, I learnt an awful lot that I didn't know about international law. He was obsessed with the Vienna Conventions, which had only just been um, uh, signed fairly recently before that. And so I learnt an enormous amount, which later became valuable to me uh, from him about all of that. And <laughs> um, what happened towards the end of that year in November was that John Kennedy was killed, as you would remember, mm -hmm. in November 1996, just, in fact, just before we were married. And I was at home on a Saturday morning, and I heard this news on the radio. So I thought, what does this mean for us? So I jumped in the car, went to the department, and went to work. Uh, in my in my protocol area because I knew that what Macmillan would want would be for all of the foreign missions in Canberra to be contacted and told what Australia was doing about the death of Canberra. Uh, in particular, and this was always very important, to tell them that they needed to fly their flags at half-mast. Uh, I was busy ringing up 50 or 60 different missions mm. to convey this news to them. And I got, I got a great deal of gratitude from Macmillan for this, for taking the initiative, because this is the kind of thing they're looking for from young, wet-behind-the-ears diplomats. Except, of course, that the next month I was going to get married and be lost to all of them. And what happened? Did well, you, I did, didn't I? You got married <laughs> and you got lost. <laughs> I, I did. I did. And... and my husband, uh, who had been doing a bit of, of um, Japanese language study uh, in the hope that he would be posted to Tokyo, got posted to Tokyo. Mm. So off we went. And I then, because I couldn't work and I had nothing to do, um, I studied Japanese. And, it, and, of course, it changed my life because I was already a bit of a linguist. And although Japanese was very badly taught in Tokyo in those days, it was taught by people who used books written by American missionaries mainly, who didn't understand language, um, but, you know, could speak Japanese, had no idea about how to write a, a textbook. Anyway, so I got into this in a very big way, and I started to get um, very interested in Japan, and I went all over the place with friends, made lots of Japanese friends, and had we had, two of us had, a really good time. And we decided that the way to be uh, diplomats, particularly in Asian countries, was not to listen to the multiple foreign affairs, but, sorry, foreigners mm. who used to sit around whinging and complaining and saying how awful all the Japanese are when they didn't know any. Um, and so we sort of cultivated foreigners who liked Japan and who had Japanese friends and who were interested in what this, this post-war 
developing country was up to. And we did that. And it proved to be something that we, we did in all subsequent postings. We, mm. we made friends with the people who liked the country and we avoided the people who didn't. Yeah, so you're quite right. It's easy to get into that trap of, you know, being the foreigner in a country yeah. and acting as a foreigner, not making an effort. So how long How long did you and your husband, Richard, stay in, in Japan for? We were in Japan for three years that time. Right. Uh, and that, how- that just after the Tokyo Olympics. And so Japan at, at that time was a little bit like, like China in 19... 19- in 2008, mm-hmm. when they had the Olympic Games, they put a huge amount of effort and expense into the Olympics, and it was sort of putting themselves on the world map in the way that they wanted to be recognised and regarded. Um, and, and China did exactly in 2008. So what uh, was happening in Japan was... It, I mean, Tokyo was a rapidly modernising city. Um, some of it was still war damaged. Some of it was pretty run down. But um, it, it was it was fascinating to see how things were becoming very sophisticated and 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 was rebuilding itself in the way it wanted to be. The the, the downside of all of that in fact, uh, which which emerged while we were there, was the American presence, which, of course, the occupation was over, but the Americans insisted on having a large number of very big military bases in Japan, and the Japanese were not in a position, in spite of their peace constitution, uh, to get rid of them. Mm. And they're still there. They're still there, that's right. Oh, absolutely. And that was uh, an interesting side of things, partly because I met a lot of Americans that way um, and and did some, uh, tried to sort of do some good works with them. They were, for instance, um, there was a group of Japanese, uh, American women not all of them associated with the military by any means. One of them was the wife of a very prominent lawyer, and she became a good friend of mine. Um, they formed a group called International Social Service. And although I don't like overseas and, and the sorts of people who try to hang out with them very much, but this was a very hands-on group whose responsibility was to get the, the, the children of foreign of American servicemen who'd been born in Japan who needed to be adopted into other countries mm-hmm. because neither the father nor the mother um, wanted this this Japanese American kid and so we had these little babies some of them or, or small children looking for um, adoption adoptive countries and so it helped them to have an Australian on their committee, and I did work with them on that. And they had other people. That sort of thing was the upside of of the American military presence. At least they, you know, I, it was interesting for me to see how American women, particularly, got themselves organised and did 
was mm. really impressive. So, um, and, and I continued to see that sort of thing in many other places. Right. So could you tell us a, uh, about a few more of uh, your postings and uh, when did okay. you... Hmm. Well, after, by the end of Japan, we had a small daughter who was born there, and it was hardly a good time, well, she was six months old, hardly a good time for me to try to go back to full-time work, partly for two reasons, partly because the, the marriage bar was still in force in, in Canberra, and I couldn't have got a permanent job anyway. And partly because um, there, were there was absolutely no childcare in Canberra, that just none. Mm. And so it, you had to, if you were going to look after your child, you had to do that yourself. And so work was out of the question. Uh, for a while, at least, um, although um, after she was a little older, um, I got myself a, a job as a journalist at the Canberra Times. And, and oh no, sorry, that was much later. Pardon me, I've, I've just jumped, uh, skipped a, a, a decade or so. So we said, we said to, um, I did do that. Anyway, we said to the department, look, we need another overseas posting because at least then, if we have another child, at least we can get uh, some home help and we can get our family established before I go back to work. So the head of the department at the time, because I had been working for the Canberra Times briefly, heard that I was hoping to work as a journalist in whatever overseas country Richard got sent to. And so he decided that to prevent that happening, he would send us somewhere where no such opportunity existed. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Burma, right. <laughs> where no such opportunity existed. Yes. And there we were in Rangoon for two years. Mm. So I wasn't able to work as a journalist. I did send a few articles back to a few magazines. Um, and... Um, I thought, what am I going to do now? So what I did was I wrote a novel, and I imposed this on one of my former lecturers at Adelaide University, who was Geoffrey Dutton. Yeah, right. and, Ge and Geoffrey Dutton, by that stage, was running Stun Books with, mm. with Harris. And he recommended my book for publication by Macmillan. And so I began my brilliant career as a writer. And this was a crap novel, I can tell you. Well, it was a it first was, novel. Don't be too hard on yourself. It was your first <laughs> novel. It was terrible. But uh, 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 I have never... Look, hang on, hang on. Um, you tell, us, tell us the title so people can chase it up <laughs> and find out for themselves whether it's crap or not. One ambassador. It was about Japan, right. and an Australian ambassador who got kidnapped by a mob of um, radicals in Japan, mm. and it was complete crap. I mean, it really was, and I'm embarrassed to even mention it. But at least I had my foot, I thought, in the door um, as as a writer. 
so there we were in in Burma, and that that was on its way, and and then I thought, um, okay, what what are we going to do next? And by the end of that time, we had a small child, another, and so we said we need another overseas posting. So quick as a flash, we went to uh, Iran. You know why I'm laughing. <laughs> there we were in Tehran uh, with the Shah in power, yes. two small children, and um, we learned Farsi, and we did what we could, and we had a good time, and, and in fact, we enjoyed um, Iran very much. We had a great time. And mm. did, you, did, you go some of the, did you go to some of the Shah's legendary parties? Uh, we did. Yes. Um, his palace just up the hill from our house. Um, yeah, we went to the Shah's parties, and we went to visit the tent city in Isfahan, where they just had the, the great celebration anniversary of the, uh, of the Persian monarchy, uh, which had taken place before we were there. And uh, we used to go skiing in the Alborz. God, it was terrific. We made a lot of Iranian friends. We lost most of them because they were all uh, uh, friends of the Shah. And when the Ayatollah came in, everything changed. And some of them lost their lives. Some of them, most of them scattered around the world. And quite, uh, quite a, a dramatic change. So after that, um, we went back to Canberra, um, and by that time, 1974-5, um, Whitlam uh, was in power, and he said, I want a much better and much bigger foreign service, and uh, I need all the people and to start it, and you, Bronowska. Bronowska, with the A. <laughs> I, I need you back in foreign affairs. So I said, oh, okay, all right. Now, we, we've now got equal pay. We've now got um, the marriage bar has fallen. But what are you going to do uh, for people who are married to each other? Because up to that point, although people have been marrying each other, they haven't been allowed to work in the same place. Right. So, uh, so, one more obstacle to to get over. They said, oh, we'll have to go to the board about that. So they went to the board, and they came back within a month and said, it's okay, you and your husband will be posted to Manila together. And so we were. And that was the first and last time that we managed to work together in any place mm. because... Um, as soon as the government changed, the rules about women all came back again. Not not the marriage bar, but they certainly didn't want married couples working in the same places. And the the final sanction was that if one of the couple became an ambassador, then um, that person's spouse, and it was almost invariably a woman, um, could not work. Mm. So when they wanted to send Richard to, ambassador, to the ambassador in Vietnam, in Hanoi, in uh, 
officer in a Howard government. I mean, he'd already made his views about Asia very clear. My views about Asia were completely different, and I couldn't uh, go along with people who excused Pauline Hanson mm-hmm. and the rest of it. And so I took myself over to ANU and said, I want to write a PhD on Australian how Australia is viewed in Asian countries. They said, come and do it. So I did. Um, that then became another book called um, About Face, Asian Impressions of Australia. And so then I taught at ANU for a while. Then we, when we both foreign affairs, we went to live in Sydney. I taught at Macquarie for a while, did research at Wollongong on Asian-Australian fiction, etc., etc. And here we are, back in Sydney, in one piece, after a long and interesting time. Do you think think, um, the way we're viewed in Asia has changed, or do you think it's worse? It's gone back to how it was. Mm. We've always had the reputation that we we built it over years of conservative government. They always do it. They make it perfectly clear, as Howard did that we don't intend to change who we are to gratify anybody in an Asian country or to try to learn from them or to try and adapt ourselves to be neighbours. That is how it is. And every time we have a Labour government, that changes. For instance, even under uh, um, Julia Gillard, who didn't have a, a foreign affairs nerve in her body, we got the uh, Asian Affairs White Paper, which laid it all out and said, look, this is what we have to do. We have to make a huge effort to make ourselves Asia-capable, learn languages, understand the economies, histories and cultures of of neighbouring countries and get on with it as if we are here, not part of an Anglo alliance. But when you have a conservative government in Australia, it goes back the other way. And the Anglo Alliance isn't, becomes dominant, which it now is, to such a point that um, we are now so deeply into the coming war, whatever that will be, and it could well be against China, that it will be impossible for Australia to stay out of it. In the past, we occasionally did manage to stay out of um but all of the wars in Asia that we went into were decided under um, coalition governments. The successful things that we did were under Labour, like, for instance, Timor intervention, the, the Cambodia intervention, the Solomon Islands intervention. All of those were non-military. They were, they were peaceful, uh, internationally legal efforts um, on, on Australia's part. We've now lost the capacity to do that in two ways. One is the opposition doesn't dare anymore to do things like that, even if they're in government. The other is that we've lost the skills in, uh, in our foreign service. We have depleted the Department of Foreign Affairs down to the bone. They lost 50 positions last year. They shut missions overseas. Australia has small of overseas embassies, of any overseas, uh, OECD countries. 
developing countries take foreign affairs matters much more seriously and treaties and agreements much more seriously than Australia does. All we do is line up ourselves to do what the American military wants us to do. And unfortunately, that is a very dangerous road, I believe, for us to be on at this time. Well, I think you're 100%. Well, obviously, you've got the experience and you're 100% correct because I don't remember a time where things have been so dangerous. And I don't think most Australians realise the path we have taken in the last few years is an exceptionally dangerous path. I, I totally agree. Look, we and the United States couldn't defeat the Taliban. That's right. right? <laughs> yes. Imagine what would happen if we went to war with China. Hmm. Just no. imagine. And we should not. China, because apart from anything else, it would be illegal. It would be a war of aggression. Not that the Americans care, but we do, because we are signatories to the International Criminal Court. And we do try, just to try, to abide by the principles of the UN Charter, which say that such a war would be illegal. Mm. And we have leaders who don't seem to know or care about that anymore. Well, I think, I think since the invasion of Iraq, uh, whether something is legal or illegal, they wouldn't care. But I don't think a lot of people understand how much U.S. Um, presence, their actual military presence, there is in Australia today. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Well, you know, the, not just yeah. the bases, but the, the number of U.S. troops that have poured into North Australia recently, the alliances uh, that have been made. Indeed, our military is absolutely inextricable now from U.S. forces. The equipment we are spending huge amounts are all for U.S. purposes, not for the defence of Australia. They're for invading other countries to fit in with what the Americans got, they have got. And they benefit American companies. We pay for it. Mm-hmm. And they pocket it. I mean, it, you can't a more absurd situation. We put ourselves in danger by doing this. We have the American surveillance and intelligence bases on our soil, which make us a target. I mean, it's absurd. I cannot why a responsible Australian government can do this. Mm. And yet, the Department of Foreign Affairs has had its innards taken out and transferred, quite frankly, to places like the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Defence Department, and ASPE, which is like a surrogate foreign ministry now in Canberra. And it's funded, not only funded by the Australian government and the defence industries, but it's funded by the state. It's now about to get a branch office in Washington. I mean, can you imagine this? Mm. It is a vestige of what Australia used to be and could have been. That's extraordinary. What Can you see any glimmer of hope, or do you think it's just going to be more of the same? We're going to get more and more... Uh... Involved. I mean, the last two years have been extraordinary in terms of the alliances that we've been able to... We've forged with the US. It's just been extraordinary. You're quite right. Vestiges of hope. We... I'm president now of Australians for War Powers Reform. We want the war powers in, in change by legislation to make it impossible for Australia to go to war without a debate and a vote in the parliament, which is only what you would expect in a democratic country, but we don't have it. 
that's point one, and it's a very important thing for us to safeguard our own um, survival. And the other is that I hope that under a new government, particularly with all these independent voices coming, we hope, coming into the parliament, that uh, opposition will be forced back to its previous principles and to realise that we are headed on a, a kind of very dangerous path that you have just described and to say we won't do it. Because if Australia refuses to join an American coalition for a war, that is a major impediment for the U.S. in going ahead with it, you see. Mm. It's, they always need a coalition. When the British wouldn't go, voted against going into Syria, the United States had to call it off. I mean, this is important. Now, I wish you and your listeners well, but I have to immediately go and do some things. Is okay. that all right? That's fine. Look, it's uh, been lovely to talk no, to you. No, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's lovely not only to talk to you about your past, but to, about the present and all the things you're doing. So we'll let you off the hook. And uh, thank you very much for uh, putting up with us for the last uh, 50 Not minutes or so. Thank you, and I apologise for leaving in a hurry. That's okay. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, we've got about another seven or eight minutes to go, so I really want to speak a little bit about uh, Alison Brownowski. Um, her surname, it's B-R-O-I-N-O-W-S-K-I. And if you want to learn more about her... Uh, personal journey i suggest you go to uh, wikipedia and obviously she's a person who although 80 is um well aware of what's happening and is not sitting on her laurels she's uh interestingly uh raised a very important issue about war powers because i think a lot of people don't understand that you don't need a debate in this country to declare war on another sovereign nation state. You don't need a parliamentary debate. You don't need a motion to go through both houses of parliament. That it is the prime minister's prerogative, which they can exercise at any time. Say if the US gets involved in a dispute with China over Taiwan, the prime minister would come out within 24 hours and say that we supported the US reaction to that uh, potential invasion and uh, put us up, as they said in World War One, to the last man and woman and the last shilling. So it is an exceptionally important issue. And uh, one question I was going to ask Alison is why there is such little debate or exposure of what's actually been happening in this country over the last three to four years. Because we have taken a turn where it looks like that we no longer belong in Asia geographically. It's as if we've got a towboat and we're towing uh, Australia up to the uh, US and Britain to join them in some type of geographical alliance. And I, I know I've been facetious, but the foreign policies that we are now pursuing are exceptionally dangerous considering the military strength of not just China but even North Korea. And uh, it's a real issue. There are thousands of US troops now based in the Northern Territory. As Alison said, the military networks are totally interlinked. 
and this whole business about this uh, new alliance between Britain, the US and Australia regarding this submarines which will appear in about 40 years' time is all about um, supporting the American military-industrial complex with with Australian dollars. I mean, money that could be spent in other regions. Now, the best way, I think, as Alison was pointing out, is if we want to be safe in this part of the world and we can't hook up Australia to some tugboats and tow us up, you know, to Florida... The only way we can be safe is that we need to take our Asian neighbours seriously, that we need to enter dialogue and that we need to come to some type of accommodation. Now, the next federal election, which will be held in the next uh, four months or so, is going to be a critical election because if the Morrison-led government is re-elected into power, what will that do is actually solidify the USA-Australia bromance which we're seeing uh, currently and it will make every Australian a target. Now it's interesting, look, I'm just a, I'm just a, um, you know, I'm just a commentator, but Alison Brownowski has got a long history in uh, foreign affairs. She's got a Order of Australia medal for her work in foreign affairs and journalism. She's got a lot of experience, been in a lot of hotspots around the world, in Manila during the Marcos regime, in Tehran, uh, before the Ayatollah came into power, the Muslim fundamentalists, uh, Burma during the military regime, post-war Japan, uh, she knows how foreign affairs works. She's seen the foreign affairs department gutted. She's seen the embassies closed down. She's seen political appointments in all most of the major embassies in this country, you know, for uh, retired Liberal National Party politicians. And obviously she understands how dangerous this election strategy of demonising Asia is. I mean, it's worked in the past, I remember the Yellow Peril campaigns in the 1960s and 70s. I remember the the Hanson campaigns. And the thing about Alison is is that she's she's a woman who um, sticks by her principles, whether it's her right as a woman to work, whether it's her right to not work with uh, somebody like Howard and and their particular regressive policies. So uh, it was a pleasure to talk to her. Uh, hopefully she has opened your mind to the situation we currently find ourselves in. And hopefully you will look her up, uh, look at her books, because obviously she has uh, made a, a contribution and she continues to make a contribution, especially trying to change legislation to ensure that at least Parliament makes decision whether we as a sovereign nation state go to war against other sovereign nation states. Now, if you know somebody who's interesting and who you think would make a good guest on Radical Australia, unfortunately we can't interview them face-to-face, please go to the website, Radical Australia, and I am sure that Kelly Whitworth will be very happy to chat to you about who you think we should be interviewing because it's the people you know that we want to get other get our listeners at 3CR to understand. There is a huge, huge uh, pool of experience, 
that needs to be shared, and that's what Radical Australia is all about. All the best. Yeah, Joe. and just lastly, if you'd like to know more about Alison's work, she's currently busy, as she mentioned, with Australians for War Powers Reform. And uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.